right, everyone, welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. Uh, we're going to do episode 13, I think. I am Brandon Odo, back here with Brian Bowling. And we are back on track with some good, fundamental, critical care stuff again. Um, I, I did want to briefly say, we don't harp on this kind of stuff too much, but we're about six months into this little project here. 13 episodes deep, and hopefully you are enjoying some of what you're hearing. So if you think it's been worthwhile, it would be helpful if you could maybe give us a quick review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you like to use. Uh, maybe share around the link on, uh, on social media, however you like to communicate. Uh, that would be helpful for you know, kind of getting other people involved if that's their thing. Other than that, uh, we have another episode today, which is, is going to be me in the hot seat, and hopefully it's not going to be too rough. Um, Brian, you want to share what you've got? Yeah, so we're doing some of my favorite stuff today, which is just good bread and butter neurocritical care. I know a lot of people probably just shut down at the sound of the word neuro, but um, I love neurocritical care. And it's very interesting, and we're not going to do anything too exotic or fancy. This is stuff that you may see if you work in an ED or in a general um, kind of medical surgical ICU someplace if you don't have neurospecialty. Uh, that's okay, because this is all kind of real basic bread and butter stuff. Yeah, you know, I find that even though neurocritical care has kind of a, this, this image of specialty care, it, you, you see it everywhere. I mean, if you're in a specialized neuro unit, definitely, but if you're in a surgical ICU, if you're in a medical ICU, if you're in the ED, um, they all do this stuff because you know, neuro-type problems present everywhere. So you kind of can't get away from it. Yeah, you really can't. I mean, so acute ischemic stroke is still the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, and it's the number one cause of long-term disability in the United States. So this is stuff that's everywhere, and you don't have to be a specialty center to see it necessarily. All right, you ready? Let's do it. All right. So you are on call in the ICU, and you get a phone call from your colleagues in the emergency department who tell you they have a patient that's come in that they would like you to admit. It's a 56-year-old gentleman who was brought in by EMS with some right-sided weakness and altered mental status. His wife reports that he uh, had this, where he woke up this morning not acting himself, um, and she thought he was having a stroke, so she called 911. They bring him in. On arrival, his Glasgow coma score was 9, and that shakes out to an I score of 3, motor of five and vo uh, voice verbal. I'm sorry. I forgot what V stood for a second of one. Um, he was hemiplegic on the right and the ED intubated him for concerns for airway protection. So they've called you because he is uh, intubated now and is going to need to be admitted to the ICU. He has had a CAT scan of his head. CT of his head shows a about 45 millimeter left frontotemporal ICH, so intracranial hemorrhage, with extension into the left lateral and third ventricle. Pretty decent sulcal effacement on the left and partial ventricular effacement on the left and about a two millimeter midline shift. So you go down to see him and that's what you know so far. All right, so 
I come across him in the ED. He's intubated. Um, I think the first step is probably a good exam, but maybe the step zero would be a sense for whether he's sedated and or paralyzed right now. Was he just intubated? He was just intubated within the last like 30 minutes. So he's probably still paralyzed. Uh, he's definitely sedated. Uh, his wife is at the bedside, so she can answer questions for you. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you're not going to get a ton out of his exam right now. Yeah. Um, that's always kind of an important thing to ask. And certainly, you know, what they gave him. So say you got maybe rocuronium to intubate him. That's going to be a longer lasting paralytic. Of course, sedatives plus or minus. Um, often these kind of folks, we like to keep them relatively unsedated so we can get a good exam. But I, I, you always have kind of a this window around innovation where that's not really realistic and maybe not even a good idea because whatever their neuro situation, I don't really want them unsedated if they are still paralyzed. Um, that being said, still worth a shot. So uh, what are we seeing on exam? Does he respond to voice? Does he respond to any pain? Will he follow any commands? He's a 3T right now. Okay. Uh, what do his pupils look like? They are sluggish bilaterally, relatively even. I mean, you know, nothing extreme. Okay, so kind of grossly normalish pupils. Yeah, like I said, a little sluggish, but... uh, Okay. Anything else really worth seeing on exam there? No, not really. Like I said, he's a 3T. He he got rocuronium and about 70 of propofol for intubation. Um, And he is on a propofol drip right now. Okay, and just to confirm his story with his wife there, he was at his baseline, which I assume is relatively normal yesterday, and then this morning he woke up and was off? Yeah, so he woke up, he was having trouble moving his right side, he was confused uh, and not able to really answer questions for her, um, but he was, he was able to look around and he was able to talk, when EMS arrived, he was no longer verbal, uh, but he was still moving spontaneously, just not on the right. Okay, so kind of a a worsening mental status even over that period. Right. Um, and then prior to this, he's been well. Nothing been going on. He hasn't been sick or he hasn't had any injuries, for instance. Correct. He's at his normal baseline of health. Okay. What's his other medical history like? So he's a history of AFib. Uh, he has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes. He's a one pack a day smoker, social drinker, denies any kind of illicits. Okay. So smoker, diabetic, hypertensive. Um, I think as you've said before, kind of Kentucky healthy. Uh, right. Right. Kind of a, a, a normal, although non-specific milieu of, uh, you know, unwellness. Uh, what kind of medications has he taken? Uh, so she says he takes uh, Apixaban, Metoprolol 25BID, uh, Lisinopril 20, Atorvastatin 20, and 500 twice a day of metformin for his diabetes. Okay. So beta blocker, which is not uncommon, uh, and of course, Apixaban, important in the setting of a bleed like this. Um, any allergies? None that she's aware of. Okay. So we have um, essentially a hemorrhagic stroke uh, called either a intraparenchymal hemorrhage or intracranial hemorrhage, depending on, on who you ask. Um, not 
not the biggest in the world, but not nothing. And it sounds like some early signs of increased intracranial pressure or herniation on the CT. Um, so I think our priorities are to obviously stabilize him, um, kind of optimize his situation to prevent any further damage and to you know, make any neurosurgical interventions that are, are going to be needed. So I think a, an early call to the neurosurgery team, if they haven't already been involved, are they rattling around anywhere? Uh, no, but you can call them. All right, I'll give them a buzz. And I think what I'm particularly wondering is, um, do they need to place any invasive monitoring for his ICP and or um, anything therapeutic? And usually what we're talking about here is uh, a bolt, meaning a, an interprenchymal pressure monitor, which would tell us, um, give some sense for his ICP. And, you know, a lot of places will use um, uh, an indication of essentially someone who you know, has signs of, of elevated ICP or serious brain injury and also, uh, a, you know, a low GCS. So someone who like this is essentially comatose. It's hard to monitor them clinically for any worsening because they're about as bad as they're going to get. Now, maybe he's going to wake up some more, <laughs> but at least for now, it's hard to follow him clinically. So I think a lot of places would, would place, uh, some place called a Camino, a bolt, um, and then potentially uh, an EVD or um, an IVH, an intraventricular drain, which would give us another way of monitoring those pressures, maybe even a more reliable one because we really have a, a catheter directly into that space there, uh, as well as a therapeutic option of draining off some CSF to reduce the ICP. Um, I, it's, some places I think will place these just preferentially versus just a bolt. Um, I think the, the clear indications are when you have um, signs of hydrocephalus. So if you've, you've kind of blocked off drainage of the CSF. So sometimes you can get a sense for that uh, from seeing if kind of the, the cisterns and maybe the fourth ventricle and the CT are, are open or not. Um, but a lot of it, I think, is just center dependent. So if they could at least come around and, you know, give us some sense for what they want to do versus, um, you know, our, our default a lot of the time would be just kind of monitoring, essentially. Okay. So um, the ED sent some labs uh, before they called you, and those are back. Um, they sent a CBC, a BMP, some coags, and an ABG. Um, your CBC looks pretty good. H&H is 8 and 24. White count's 15. Platelets are 250. Uh, BMP, sodium's 135. Potassium's 4. Chloride's 95. Uh, bicarb's 22. BUN is 10. Creatinine's 0.9. And glucose is 95. Your gas is okay too, 7.42, CTO, a PCO2 of 35, PO2 of 190, and a bicarb of 22. And your INR is 2. Okay. Um, so I guess the things that I am, my eyes are drawn to there are um, a normalish platelet count, which is great, and he's not in any meds that should be qualitatively affecting his platelet count. His sodium is a touch on the low side. Um, so kind of in discussion with neurosurgery, there's a good chance they're going to want to nudge that a little higher. Um, not necessarily acutely trying to make him real hyperosmolar for his herniation, but at least not low uh, and maybe on the higher side. Now, if he's always 135, then maybe that's his baseline and, you know, 140 is slightly hypertonic, but somewhere around there. Um He's a normalish pH and CO2, which is, is good, and I'm going to want to keep him there because that's probably going to be the, the best situation for his brain. 
And then obviously we have to worry about his coagulation status. He is on a, a DOAC, as we're saying now, a Pixaban. Correct. Um, which probably should be reversed. Okay. And um, in the past and perhaps in the present, what we've mostly been doing for that is um, four-factor PCCs, prothrombin complex concentrates. K-Centra is the brand name we have right now. Um, which, you know, was originally really intended for warfarin reversal, and we've all sort of started to think that it probably works sort of for these DOACs. Um, probably not great, but it's what's available. Better than the only real alternative, which would be FFP, which probably works even less well. Now, there is now a direct reversal agent. Um, what is it? Andexa? Andexanet. Um, Andexanet, which um, I have actually no experience with. My center does not have it, and I think a lot of them have not chosen to place it in their formularies yet because it's very expensive and there's some questions still about efficacy. Um, but if it's available, that's probably what we should give, and if not, then probably PCCs. Yeah, so a side note, you're, you're right. Andexanet was approved um, in May of last year, May of 2019, uh, by the FDA. Yeah, 2019. Um, it is still, we don't carry it on our formulary. Um, and our PT committee is wanting still more data. It's, like you said, it's very expensive. Um, I looked the other day just to sort of get an idea. Uh, I think if I'm remembering correctly, and don't quote me if somebody sees better numbers, um, but I believe it was around $20,000 per patient for reversal. Uh, it's compared to about $5,000 per patient for FFP, or for, sorry, for, for PCC. Which is funny, because a lot of the time, we, we don't spend too much attention on the cost of our treatments, but it's almost like if it's expensive enough, then it makes us really look about how good the evidence for efficacy right. is. <laughs> right, So there's yeah. there's some balance here about yeah. what's... Yeah. All right, so you're um, going to give I, him some K-Centra? Yeah, and I, I guess the other thing worth asking, uh, given that gas, is kind of what settings he's on in the ventilator. Sure. So he's on pretty basic settings: um, PRVC rate of sixteen, uh, tidal volume of four hundred, forty percent, and five a peep. Okay. So it seems like normalish lungs, which makes sense. He's yeah. really innovated for his mental status, and it's just something we we'll want to keep an eye on again to keep him kind of in a, a nice zone there. So other than that, you know, a lot of these folks we essentially bring to the ICU, uh, and we focus on kind of normalizing all these things if we can, um, and, you know, doing kind of frequent neuro checks. The things I'd be specifically paying attention to in this case are um, obviously his anticoagulation reversal. And I, I, I would maybe look a little harder at this um, because for me, someone who's on a Pixaban, uh, Usually their INR, it, which is not a very good m marker of this anticoagulation, is maybe slightly elevated, 1.1, 1.2, maybe 1.3. An INR of 2 is, to me, pretty high for that drug alone. And again, you don't follow these levels for therapeutic effect, but there is kind of a normalish range for these drugs. Um, that's more of like a, a Coumadin INR um, or someone who's coagulopathic for other reasons. Um, so I would probably wonder if there could be another cause, and that would often be things like malnutrition, so they don't have enough vitamin K for whatever reason. Obviously, other medications on board. It sounds like we've got a reasonably good history. He hasn't been sneaking in warfarin or things like that, um, or people with just other medical causes for coagulopathy, which, again, seems maybe a little unlikely. But I'd you know probably send a full set of coags, and I would probably consider... Um, 
Maybe giving something like vitamin K in a case like this, just in case the, there is a secondary process there to reverse. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, and then I, I guess we'll see what neurosurgery thinks, but um, typically separate from whatever else they're doing, um, we're going to be doing close neuro checks, um, often a follow-up CT scan. Um, we could uh, wonder, I guess, in a case like this, where this seems like a spontaneous bleed, whether this was triggered by maybe hypertension. Um, I don't know if he's been hypertensive here. How do his vitals look? So he is uh, normal sinus at 95. His blood pressure is 180 over 100. Uh, and he's setting 98% on those previous vent settings, and he's still breathing right with the vent right now. Yeah. So certainly, certainly hypertensive right now, um, which, you know, I don't know if he's been chronically poorly controlled and that contributed to this. Even if not, it probably needs to be controlled here. So we'll usually try to get them in a reasonable range just to, you know, slow further evolution of the bleeding. Everyone's got a different cutoff. This is often a collaborative decision. Um, at current place, they often like to keep their systolics under 140. I was originally taught under maybe 160 in this setting. Uh, 140 only maybe for like an uncontrolled uh, subarachnoid aneurysm, something like that. Um, but somewhere in that range. Um, so often we'll do like PRN, labetalol, things like that. Um, but I have a low threshold for going to a drip, which usually would be nicardipine in a case like this. Gives you pretty good control and it's pretty easy to use. Um, what is his rhythm like? Is he in AFib? He is not. He is in normal sinus rhythm. Okay. Uh, so you could always wonder, you know, he has a history of AFib. Could he have maybe had a stroke, which had a hemorrhagic conversion, something like that? I don't know. That has a huge impact on what we're doing right now. Uh, he has been anticoagulated, which maybe makes it less likely. Um, but we're certainly not going to anticoagulate him at the moment for any AFib. And I don't really think he's a candidate for any other sort of stroke therapies like TPA or, or thrombectomies or things like that. But otherwise, I think it's mostly in the hands of neurosurgery where we go from here. Okay. So you get him up to the ICU and you get him settled and uh, you're still waiting on neurosurgery. They're kind of tied up in the operating room and the nurse calls you and says, so his blood pressure is now 200 over 120. I've given the PRN labetalol to no effect. Okay. Um, you know, I would probably go to the nicardipine in this case, but, um, you know, I would also sort of wonder the larger situation. How how, how far are we from intubation at this point, time-wise? Uh, about an hour. Okay. Uh, ha has he w woken up at all? He's starting to wake up. Um, he is, His GCS now is a 141. Okay. And his pupils? Pupils are still sluggish. His right pupil is a little larger than his left. Okay. Um, but they both still do react sluggishly. Um, how is his heart rate? His heart rate is 80 sinus. Okay. I ask because, um, you know, obviously in this sort of setting, uncontrolled hypertension can be a component of Cushing's triad, which is, you know, a response to an elevated ICP along with bradycardia and sort of abnormal respirations. Um, either way, it needs to be controlled, but in the context may also be a sign of, of worsening. And now abnormal pupils is definitely not a great sign. Again, this kind of difficult exam around intubation always gets in the way a little bit because that's usually right during in the, the hot period of these patients, you know, hospital course. Um, but I'm, I'm a little worried that he's 
actually getting worse and not just, you know, giving us a hard time with his blood pressure and his mental status. So I would start nicardipine, try to get his blood pressure controlled, and again, in the meantime, talk to the neurosurgical team, let them know what's going on, um, and see what they want to do. Okay. So you start the nicardipine, and your your goals are less than 140, I think is what we said, right? Uh, I guess given my druthers, maybe 160, um, okay. unless they have some other opinion. Okay. So then the intern for neurosurgery comes by and says that his upper level is scrubbed into a case right now. He came by to look at the images, and he thinks that they would probably benefit from an EVD, but he's not capable of putting one in solo. So he wanted to just lay eyes on the patient and see how things are going and kind of pass along some recommendations from neurosurgery. Um, They recommend getting his systolic less than 140. Um, and they also recommend driving his sodium up to 140 to 145. Okay. So I, I guess this kind of, I mean, especially if there's going to be a delay until other management, but really no matter what's going on, uh, we should just give a little more attention to what we're doing about this presumably elevated intracranial pressure. Um, the way I learned this, and I think this is commonly taught now in ENLS and courses like that, is kind of a tiered approach. Um, so basic things to try to improve drainage from the head and reduce swelling, keep the head of the bed elevated, keep the head in the midline, and this can be actually more tricky than it sounds. A lot of patients will kind of flop their head to one side on their own, especially if they're you know fairly comatose. So some attention to really kind of keep them in the center. Um, and if there's like C collar or something, um, make sure they're not too tight, and you just have good drainage from your jugulars. I've even done things like tape their head to the bed, things like that, to try to keep it in the center. Um, Sedation as needed. If you do have a patient who is awake or agitated or in pain, that's not going to help their ICPs. If they're febrile, try to control that, although it can be challenging if uh, it's from a central cause. Um, I guess those are kind of the most central things. And then usually we transition into kind of hyperosmolar therapies, which is what they're talking about with the sodiums. You can use mannitol. uh, You can use hypertonic saline. Um, There's always a little controversy about what's what. They probably both work. They have pluses and minuses. I think a lot of us have tended to go towards hypertonic saline for just kind of uh, routine care. Um, We usually like to run it through a central line. Probably it's okay peripherally, at least for some period of time. But in a patient who's clearly going to be real sick like this, I would place one. Um, probably place it in a subclavian vein. Uh, it's good form to avoid the IJs if you're trying to maximize venous drainage from the head. Now, is a small, like, triple lumen line in the IJ a huge problem? I, I don't know. But, you know, anything we can do is probably for the better. Um, so I'd pop in a central line, and then we'll probably start running hypertonic saline, which uh, 3%, I think, is the most common one. I've been places that use 2%. It's kind of whatever. Um, up from there, usually you're talking about 23, 24-ish percent, which is just available in these little bullets, which are usually for to kind of push acutely for, you know, herniation emergencies. Um, but for a case like this, what I'd probably do is um, give a, a bolus of 3%, maybe, I don't know, maybe 250, something like that and then start running a drip. Um, and there's probably a more scientific way to do this, but I'd probably say maybe 50 cc's an hour, 60, 70s, around there. Um, and then we'll be checking sodiums every, at least every four hours. 
um, trying to get into that kind of slightly elevated range they were discussing. But also, frankly, following clinically, I want to make sure he's not getting worse and preferably getting better. So I'd like to see that he has equal reactive pupils, for instance. If he's waking up more, I'd like to kind of maintain that trend and so on. Um, and then beyond that, you're talking about more aggressive things. So if he does seem to be actively herniating, maybe mild hyperventilation acutely, maybe um, you know pushing more hyperosmolar agents, um, and then things things like surgery to decompress them and on from there. So hopefully we can keep him in a medical realm for now, uh, maybe permanently. But I think 3% salient at the moment um, in close neurochecks. Okay, good, yeah. So I think that all sounds pretty reasonable. Um, okay, so a little more, more time passes. The neurosurgery senior resident comes by and says, sorry, I was in this case, and I'm, but I'm out now. Uh, my intern kind of filled me in on things. It sounds like you have a decent control over stuff. Um, let's look at him. So now he is, his uh, systolic pressure is 150, um, and he's on 10 of cardine. Uh, he is still a 141, uh, but you're able to hold his sedation now to see if maybe that helps him to wake up a little bit. His pupils are still sluggish, but they're a little more equal. Um, so the resident pulls up the scan and he looks at it and he says, yeah, I think, I think we should probably put an EVD in. Um, he's got some blood in his ventricles and I'm concerned that he's going to close off his ventricles and not drain and develop some hydrocephalus. So they go ahead and put in, uh, an EVD catheter or a ventric catheter as it's sometimes called, um, into the, into the lateral ventricle to drain, uh, CSF and monitor his ICP, his ICP. Um, at opening is 15. Okay, so that's um, not a wildly high ICP, which is good. Maybe we, we did him some good. <laughs> um, you know, people who haven't used a lot of these EVDs, the drains, they can be a little confusing to look at, but they're essentially just um, uh, just a drain that is um, titrated by pressure. So you, you level its transducer to the level of essentially the brain, usually the tragus from the outside. And then it's got a, a pressure pop-off you can set to different levels depending on how um, briskly you want to drain CSF. So you can set it so that if the, CS, the ICP gets above, say, 10, then the fluid will drain. Or if it's above, say, 20 or above 5 or above 0 if you want almost constant drainage. Um, often we try to prevent drainage that's too brisk because that kind of seems like not the best thing. But... Depends on the patient. So again, this is often something we'll let the neurosurgeons kind of come up with. Um, but our role is to keep a, a close eye on it. Um, and frankly, to make sure you don't uh, bump or change the level of the bed or accidentally change how this thing is draining because it is physically leveled. <laughs> right. Good. Yeah. So, um, all right. So that that's in and everything's looking good and you're going about your normal routine. And about an hour later, the nurse calls you and says his ICP is up to 23. Okay. Um, and, again, just in the context of the, the device, um, this usually means that they're intermittently clamping the, the EVD to directly measure the ICP because you can't measure it while it's draining Correct. because it's open to drain. Um, so you check maybe every hour. And you get, obviously, a sense because if it's set at – 20 and it's draining clearly the icp wants to be over 20 <laughs> if it's not then it's somewhere under there um 
But if it's draining, it should continue to drain. If it suddenly stops, you might wonder whether it's clogged or something. But if she's, you know, clamped the thing, we have a pressure above 20, that's getting into the range we don't like. You know, above 20, we consider somewhat pathologic, um, consistent with, you know, essentially herniation. So we'll probably want to try to get it down. So, you know, I would see the patient and address all of those basic things again. Um, what are we doing sedation-wise? We don't think we talked about that. So his sedation is still held from about an hour ago. A neurosurgeon came up to do their initial exam. We turned right. the propofol off and um, have not had to turn it back on. So is he doing anything? He is. He is somewhat agitated. Uh, he's moving around spontaneously on his left side. He's still a one four one. Okay. Not following commands or anything. No, he's, he's just yeah. withdrawing from pain. Okay. You know, if he does seem like he's a little on the agitated side, um, you know, maybe just synchronous on the vent, kind of wiggly, um, he probably would benefit from some sedation. My default is always to really hold all that stuff in these patients so we can preserve their exam. Um, and then maybe light analgesia if you think they're in pain. You know, in a kind of non-traumatic case like this, I don't usually feel like there's much of that. Um, but, you know, light sedation with... Usually propofol or uh, Presidex, dexmedetomidine, I think are a good way to go. Um, just, again, to get him settled f for the sake of his ICP. Um, so I'd probably try that, get him back on something. Um, again, make sure his head's in the midline. All, we might try a little bit of analgesia, maybe a touch of fentanyl, something like that, to see if it helps. If I'm using, say, Presidex, there's some analgesia there, so maybe that's uh, enough. Um, and then if we do all that and we still have an ICP that's running high, and that's also been a, a little bit of a trial of time because sometimes just a transient blip, um, then I would probably think about uh, making him a little more hyperosmolar. Um, have we rechecked a sodium at all yet since we started our hypertonic? We did. So we sent labs. Uh, they just came back, coincidentally enough. Uh, <laughs> his sodium is now 137. And the rest of his BMP is pretty unremarkable. Okay. So um, we have some more room to go on the sodium. I, I might, in this case, give another bolus of the 3%. Um, he didn't have a, a very robust response before. Maybe I'd give him 500, uh, 4 or 500 of 3%. Another option would be the, the little bullets of like 23%, but um, I often kind of reserve that for really kind of frank herniation. Um, did his pupils even out at any point? No, they're still um, sluggish, slightly uneven. Yeah. Um, not, you know, not dramatically so, but... Yeah. So I think that's probably what I would do. And of course, um, you know, update neurosurgery, because they really should be closely involved in all of this. Um, the other thing would be to kind of make sure everything else is in line. Um, we should probably check a blood gas if we haven't. I'd like to make sure that his pH and his CO2 are still nicely controlled. All right, so you send a blood gas. pH is 7.43. His PCO2 is 36. His PO2 is 180. And his bicarb is 23. Okay. I think that's fine. Uh, I would probably come down on his... Um, FiO2, frankly. He doesn't need to be hyperoxic, and it's probably better if he's not. He shouldn't be hypoxic, certainly, but I'd like him to be really normoxemic, if that's a word, and have a normal CO2 and a normal pH. Sometimes okay. you have to pick which of those is normal. Sure. Um, or pick it how heavily you want to sedate if they're tending to, say, hyperventilate. Um, but the more kind of 
euboxia we can achieve here. Uh, that's probably the less insult to the brain. But other than that, I think probably some more hypertonic is going to be the move for now. Okay. So you're going to give him the 500 of 3% or do you want to give him the 23? I, I think I, I think I would. And um, if I was running the drip at, say, I don't know, 75, I might come up some because it didn't seem like that was budging him once. Uh, maybe to maybe a, to 100. Okay. All right. So you call neurosurgery and you let them know what's going on and they tell you to drain a little CSF. Fantastic. So usually that means we're going to drop the level of the pop-off valve. It obviously was draining. <laughs> what they mean is to drain more, drain more quickly. More. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So whatever they want to do sounds fine to me. Um, is it? I'm just curious. Has the fluid been bloody? Uh, it is a little bit bloody. It's yeah. sort of pink-tinged. Yeah, and he had some intraventricular hemorrhage, so that would... Right. All right, folks, that's it for now. Tune in in two weeks for the second part of our scenario. Thank you.